time in the week that they have. That is not a small thing in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And on that note, I would encourage everybody to, to have the intention to keep this going. Because the normal situation with classes that we have, and we have it with nearly every class, is that on the first day, the masjid is packed with people. And by the 10th week, there is one saf, one row. And that's down to you. Everyone feels energy when they first start. Everyone feels excited when they first start. Even I feel excited when we're starting this program. But the question is, who is going to have the patience to remain coming every single week? Taking notes, revising, reading, memorizing. This is something very, very important. And I hope that all of you will do it. So that's why I'm mentioning it from the very beginning. Because I would like every single one of you, inshallah, to have that intention that you are going to come every single week. And not only that, but that you're going to have as much involvement in the class and the program as possible. As a teacher, I often feel that my responsibility, I have certain responsibilities with regard to preparing the class, with regard to explaining to you in an easy way, with regard to answering your questions. But you have a certain responsibility for yourselves. And that responsibility is that you take the class seriously and you try to, to benefit from what is given to you. And a lot of people have done a lot of hard work, jazahumullahu khaira, to make this class possible after the help of Allah Azza wa And so we just want to see people taking it in the best possible way, trying to benefit from it, trying to read the work they're given, do the work they're given to do at home as much as they possibly can. And I know that all of you have zoruf, all of you have things that make you busy, all of you have reasons why you can't do the work, every single one of us. Well, I could list you a, a long list of reasons why I can't prepare the lesson every week. But ultimately, you have to make that sacrifice. You have to push work aside. You have to push other commitments aside to make the time to benefit from the course. Because if you benefit from the course and you take the maximum benefit from it, then we have some aims that we want to achieve and we hope by the help of Allah, we'll be able to achieve them. And among those things is that we want to give you an opportunity to study in a way that is not normally available to people outside of the Islamic universities and educational institutes around the world. Very few people outside of those institutes get to do a program like this, where we study classical works, texts, fundamental principles of Islam and we study them as a student of knowledge would study them not as we would teach them in a class for the ordinary people because when you come to this class you stop being from the ordinary people 
You stop being from Ammatun Nas, from Al Awam, from the ordinary people. And you start being from a different category of people entirely. And that is the Tullabul Ilm, the students of knowledge. And a Talibul Ilm, a student of knowledge, is somebody different from the ordinary man and the ordinary woman. The student of knowledge has a status in the sight of Allah which is greater than the status of the ordinary person. And the expectations from the student of knowledge are greater than the expectations that we have from the awam, from the ordinary people. So we're not going to treat you like ordinary people. I'm not going to treat you like you are ordinary people like I might talk to people in my Friday night classes or in some of my other classes. Instead, I'm going to talk to you like you are tullabul ilm, students of knowledge, people who are serious about learning, people who are mature enough to be able to take on board this information and carry it and implement it and convey it to those people who are in their families and their friends and their colleagues at work and in the general society. And a huge part of being a talibul ilm, a student of knowledge, is the mentality that you have. Because if you see yourself as an ordinary person, if you see yourself as just, you know, like, I come to benefit and I go home and, and I get on with my life, then there's no doubt that there will be a deficiency in the benefit that you take from the class. But if you see yourself as a student of knowledge, then you will see this class as only the beginning. Because what we're going to teach you doesn't even represent a drop in the ocean in terms of the knowledge that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us and has made easy for us to study and learn. The knowledge that you are going to take in these classes is not even a drop in the ocean. But inshallah ta'ala, we're going to teach you how to take that drop out of the ocean, how to benefit from it, so that you can continue to, you can continue to benefit and you can continue to study. And hopefully this will propel many of you to a state of seeking knowledge which will be inshallah ta'ala beneficial to yourselves and beneficial to others. Now this course is divided, as I'm sure you all know, into modules. And the modules are divided further into subjects. And the subjects are further divided into the topic of each lesson. So right now we are in module one. And in module one, we have three core subjects. And the first subject that we have is the topic of principles of aqidah and seeking knowledge. This first topic is all about principles. This first subject is all about principles. Principles relating to seeking knowledge. Principles 
relating to what we believe as Muslims and trying to give you a feeling for the importance of usul and qawaid fundamental precepts, tenets and principles and the way that we implement them and we use them to understand our religion. This is split into four weeks, the first subject. And the topic that we have today are principles and etiquettes that relate to seeking knowledge. Now, you have a booklet which you have been given and the booklet has headings on it. Those are there for, to make it easy for you. Now, we deliberately haven't given you everything that I'm going to say or everything that I'm going to read and we haven't given you a text. And this is to make it easy for you in two ways. Number one, that you don't get distracted by following where is Muhammad Tim reading from? Is he reading from here? Is he reading from there? He just said something that doesn't match what is written here. Because as you know, mostly I'm going to be basing my work on Arabic texts and we've given you sort of some translations and things like that. That's the first thing. But the second thing is to encourage you to make notes in what you think is important. Because a lot of what I say is you know, fill a text. It's there just to fill a gap. I'm talking to you. I'm just giving you some context. And the important points, it's up to you to develop the skill as a student to extract the points which you believe are important. And on that note, there are a couple of things that I'll give you a little bit of a helping hand with. For sure, ayat and ahadith and evidences in general are going to be important. Because as a student of knowledge, you have to gather together and join between memorization and understanding. And in terms of what you need to memorize, then for sure, ayat, ahadith, and fundamental principles, these are going to be important. The explanation is more a matter of understanding. You write down whatever you think you need. Maybe something that I said you didn't know, something that I said you didn't understand, something that I said that you have a question about for later. That's, you can write that down. But primarily, there will be some essential points. There is a heading on that note paper for you and you can make your own notes under that heading. Also, in terms of setting expectations, I... I'm fairly sure, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, that there will be weeks that we do not finish everything which is in the booklet. There's a lot of material to go through, and I might go off on a tangent. I have that habit sometimes. I'll try my best to stick on message, but sometimes I go off on a tangent, and that might lead to us not finishing the text that is in the book. Don't worry about that. The scholars in general have two methodologies regarding this. One is the methodology that you finish the book no matter what. Doesn't matter, even if you have to miss out on details and information, you finish the book. And the second 
is the opinion that you teach the students what benefits them even if you only finish a quarter of the book. As for me, I think that the best khayrul umuri awsatuha. The best of things is the middle path. We're going to try to finish as much as we can, but we're not going to skimp out on details. And already now the introduction has taken 20 minutes, so I wouldn't be surprised today if we don't quite finish all of the points in the book. I will give you guys recommended reading, which you can use to finish. And you'll also notice that I haven't, in the texts that I've given you, I haven't given you the entire text anyway. For example, the first book that we're going to base our work on today, I've only given you something like a third of the book or a quarter of the book. Because in the first place, in, in one week, we cannot finish the whole book anyway. But I've tried to choose the most important parts and I will try at the end of each class to give you guys recommended reading that you can then go on to and you can benefit from. So our first topic is all about seeking knowledge and the text that we're going to use as a primer and I want to make it clear that this essentials for those of you who attended the first essentials program this essentials program has almost no overlap there is almost no overlap there might be an overlap in one or two uh, books here and there but generally this essentials program does not have any overlap this today will be an exception to the rule because we covered this book last time. However, it's so important that I have to cover it with every student and every class uh, and every program that we do. And that is the book Hilyatul Talib Al-Ilm by Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid Rahimahullah Ta'ala. This book in English is often or has been translated in full and is called something like the etiquettes of seeking knowledge. That's not what it's called in Arabic, but that's what it's been translated as in English. The etiquettes of seeking knowledge by Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid. It's worth writing down the author's name. Some of you who came last time will know the first question I asked you in the essentials exam was the author's name. And I made a compilation from the answers, which is something ajeeb. And we had Abu Bakr Siddiq. We had Sheikh Zayed. We had a Sheikh Zaid Bakr. We had Sheikh Ibn Taymiyyah, we had shuyukh who don't even exist. So I'll just give you a warning now. Write down the author's name. Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid. And not Abu Bakr Zaid. Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid. We had all sorts of things last time. And maybe at some point, if we have some time, I'll share you the pie chart of the different answers for the author's name. And the reason I did that to you is because this is what my Sheikh, Sheikh Abdul Razak al-Abbad, Hafidhullah Ta'ala, did to us. So I thought I would do that again. He asked us, the first question I remember, he asked us with regard to the explanation of Kitab al-Tawheed, Taysir al-Aziz al-Hamid, 
he asked us what is, who is the author. And still in Kuliyat al-Hadith, in the Jamia Islamiyah, in Medina al-Munawwara, most of the people did not know the answer. And they got all sorts of strange answers out of it. Because sometimes the small points we don't, we don't pay attention to. In any case, Hiliyatul Talib al-Ilm, the word Hiliya, it means, sometimes we translate it as regalia, like the, the adornment, the things that a person wears as adornment to beautify you, jewelry, uh, beautiful clothes, you know, like uh, you wear, sometimes people wear a bisht, like a, a cloak, sort of to adorn themselves. This is all from al-hilya, from adornment or decoration that a person wears, regalia, the, the formal clothing, the decoration that a person wears. And talibul ilm is of course made up of two words, talib and ilm. Talib, it means somebody who is seeking something. We translate it in English as student. We say, Ana talibun, I'm a student. But really, the word talabayatlubu, it means to seek, a seeker. And there's a benefit in that because that's what you're doing. Why do we not use the word daris, somebody who is studying? And instead we use talib. Because you're seeking that knowledge. You have to go out and get it. You have to look for it. You have to work for it. You have to ask for it. It doesn't come to you on a plate. It's something you have to work for. And al-ilm, knowledge, here means al-ilm al-shari'i. Islamic knowledge. It doesn't mean ilm al-tib, medical knowledge. It doesn't mean ilm al-handasa, engineering. It doesn't mean any of the uloom al-dunyawiyya, any of the worldly forms of knowledge. Every time knowledge is mentioned in the book of Allah or in the sunnah of the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and this is an important principle, every time that knowledge is mentioned in Islamic texts, the meaning of knowledge is Islamic knowledge. Knowledge of Islam, the knowledge which is ibadah. Not the knowledge of medicine and engineering, even though those may be beneficial to people. And they may benefit the Muslims and a person may be rewarded for doing them. But they are not the knowledge that enters you into paradise and saves you from the hellfire. This is al-ilm al-shari'i, the knowledge of Islam, Islamic knowledge. And I'm going to start by what I think, I'm just going to, before we get into the text or we get into some of the points of the text, I'm going to start with something which I believe is the single most important thing that you need to learn today. And it's very, very simple. It's so simple, I can't even think of an exam question that I would ask about it because it's that simple. The reason that you gain knowledge or the reason that knowledge benefits you is action. And if you take nothing away from the lesson today other than that one point, you would have benefited enough to justify missing your sleep and coming here at Fajr. 
The benefit of knowledge, the fruit of knowledge is action. Thamaratul ilm al-amalu bihi. The fruit of knowledge is action. Some people, and sadly, you know, we live in a world today where there's a lot of academia, universities and, you know, degrees and doctorates and, you know, so on and so on and professorships and all of these things. Wherever that knowledge takes you, and maybe some of you will go on to get a doctorate in Islamic studies. Wherever that knowledge takes you, some of you maybe go on to be professors of Islamic knowledge. Remember one thing. The fruit of knowledge is acting upon it. Wallahi, it does not matter how many degrees you have, it does not matter how many doctorates or PhDs or professorships or academic qualifications or how much experience or how many books you have memorized or how many hadith you know or how many ayat you memorized. None of that matters. What matters is the percentage of how much you act upon what you know. That is the only thing that matters. In fact, to such an extent that some of the scholars said that the ahadith about the virtue of memorizing the Quran, the meaning of memorization is not memorizing the ayat, but acting upon the ayat. As Allah said, Guard the prayers and the middle prayer, and the asr prayer. So the word hif, it can mean to memorize and it can mean to act upon something. And so some of the scholars said that the ahadith that speak about the virtue of memorizing the Quran do not apply to the person who memorizes the Quran and doesn't act upon it. This person is in danger of punishment, not reward. Knowledge is either a serious way to get you into paradise or a serious way to get you to the hellfire. And there are a number of evidences for this. From them, the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, غَيْرِ الْمَغْضُوبِ عَلَيْهِمْ وَلَا O oh Allah, do not make us from those people who have earned your anger. Your anger is upon them. Al-Maghdubi alayhim. The anger of Allah is upon them. Who are the people who the anger of Allah is upon them? They are the people who have knowledge, but they do not act upon it. And the, their example, their, their personification in the world is the Yahud. Because the Yahud are a people, wallahi, I don't know if any of you have mixed with the Yahud, but especially the Orthodox Jews. They are a people who give so much importance to knowledge. I have not seen a people, except for the students of knowledge in Islam, I have not seen a people give more importance to knowledge than the Orthodox Jews. And I have not seen a people act upon so little. They study day and night and they act upon nothing or almost nothing from what they study. And that is why they are al-maghdubi alayhim. They are the people who Allah's anger is upon them. Not because they belong to a particular tribe or a particular ethnic group or a particular history, 
but because they are a people who have knowledge but they do not act upon what they know. And al-dalleen, they are the people who have no knowledge at all. And they are personified in this ummah by the Christians, by the Nasara. Because the Nasara, by and large, are a people who have no knowledge. Even the knowledgeable among them have no knowledge. And so we ask Allah in every prayer, in every rak'ah, Oh Allah, do not make us from the people who learn but don't act. And don't make us from the people who are ignorant. And so we remember the most important thing in this class in terms of principles of seeking knowledge is that the fruit and the outcome of knowledge is action. From the evidences for this is on the day of judgment when the Prophet ﷺ described the questioning that Allah will ask of his servants a person will be asked about a number of things and one of the things he will be asked about is his knowledge he'll be asked about his knowledge but notice that the prophet did not say he will be asked about his knowledge how much does he know he will be asked about his knowledge how much of it did he act upon? Not how much did he know, but how much did he act upon? And that is why it is no, there is no, it is not necessary or it's not necessarily true that the teacher is better than the student. Rather, the student may easily be better than the teacher because the teacher knows a thousand hadith and only acts upon 10 of them. And the student only knows 10 hadith, but acts upon eight of them or nine of them. Then the one who acts upon what they know is better than the one who has a large amount of knowledge. And the reason I mentioned academia is because it's so common in these days to just value letters after your name and qualifications and, and uh, the number of ta things you have studied and books you have studied. But that's not how the Sahaba radiallahu anhum used to value knowledge. They used to value knowledge by the percentage that you act upon. The amount of knowledge that you act upon. Even if you only know one ayah. The Prophet sallallahu said, anni ayah. Inform, pass on the message from me. Even if it is only one ayah. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, there are narrations which say that they used to consider the person who memorized Surah Al-Baqarah to have a huge status in the eyes of the Sahaba. These days, the majority of your kids who go to Tahfid and have reached 10, 12, whatever years old will have memorized Surah Al-Baqarah. What's the difference? The Sahaba did not used to memorize 10 ayat before they understood the meaning of them and acted upon them. So when one of them finished Surah Al-Baqarah, he was an alim, he was a sheikh, a scholar. 
because he didn't finish Surah Al-Baqarah until he understood the meaning of every single ayah and he acted upon every single ayah. So he was considered or she would be considered to be a scholar when they memorize Surah Al-Baqarah. These days we have Hufaf who memorize the Quran and when you look at them, you don't even see any Islam on them at all. Like in terms of apparent Islam, in terms of the way they behave, the way they speak, the way they act. And yet among the Sahaba, if one of them memorized Surah Al-Baqarah, he was considered to be one of the ulama, one of the scholars. Because they acted upon what they knew. We're living in an age of information. Classes, books. You know, I wanted to study this book. I wanted to remind myself of the explanation of this book. In three or four clicks or taps of the finger, the book is available for me in front of my eyes. And yet we see a time where ignorance is prevalent. Why? We're going to come to some of the reasons today, but particularly we want to emphasize the disparity, the gap between al-ilmu wal-amal, between knowledge and action. So when you learn, make your intention an intention of learning and acting upon it, knowledge and action. And don't ask yourself how many hadith do I know and how many ayat do I know. But ask yourself, of the hadith that I know, of the ayat that I know, how many of them do I act upon? Because this is what you will be judged by in the sight of Allah There are a couple more things I want to start before we go over some of the points that the Shaykh mentioned, Hafizahullah Ta'ala. I want to start with a couple of ahadith. The first hadith is narrated by Al-Imam Muslim from the hadith of Abi Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu anhu. I will try to give you the number. In Sahih Muslim, uh, at least in the Arabic reference, it is 2701. It's the hadith of Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. And I'll just give you a tip. Uh, if you want to look up a hadith, one of the best resources for you is a website called sunnah.com. S-U-N-N-A-H.com. It's not perfect. It's a human effort, but it has a good resource there in English and Arabic. And if you look up Sahih Muslim 2701, you'll come across this hadith from Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiallahu That he said that Muawiyah came to a group of people holding a halaqa in the masjid. فَقَالَ مَا أَجْلَسَكُمْ He said, what made you sit here? قَالُوا they said, we have sat here today to remember Allah. He said, by Allah, did nothing make you sit here except to remember Allah? They said, they said, Wallahi, nothing made us sit except this. He said, I did not make you swear to this because I believe that you are lying. وَمَا كَانَ أَحَدٌ 
بمنزلتي من رسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم أقل عنه حديثا مني and there is nobody Muawiyah said there is nobody less in status in the sight of the messenger of Allah in narrating hadith but than me and this is from the tawadu' from the humility of Muawiyah otherwise there are many companions who narrated less hadith than Muawiyah but Muawiyah says Wallah I'm telling you I am the least of the people in terms of my status with the messenger of Allah in hadith I'm the smallest of the people but he narrated وَإِنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ خَرَجَ عَلَى حَلَقَةٍ مِّنْ أَصْحَابِهِ But the Prophet ﷺ came out to the masjid to find a group of people in a gathering. فَقَالَ مَا أَجْلَسَكُمْ He said, what made you sit here? So Muawiyah said to them the same thing the Prophet ﷺ said to them. What made you sit here? قَالُوا جَلَسْنَا نَذْكُرَ اللَّهَ وَنَحْمَدُهُ عَلَى مَا هَدَانَا لِلْإِسْلَامِ وَمَنَّا بِهِ عَلَيْنَا We have sat down to remember Allah and to praise Him for what He guided us to of Islam and that He blessed us in and favored us in. The Prophet ﷺ said قَالَ آللَّهِ مَا أَجْلَسَكُمْ إِلَّا ذَكَ by Allah, did anything make you sit here except that? They said, nothing made us sit except this. This is the only reason we are sitting in the masjid. He said, I'm not asking you to swear because I think that you are lying. But Jibreel came to me. فأخبرني أن الله عز وجل يباهي بكم الملائكة. But Jibril came to me and he told me that Allah is boasting about you to the angels. So this is a hadith from the many many a hadith about the virtue of seeking knowledge. You come to the masjid and you sit in the masjid. And nothing makes you sit in the masjid except because you want to remember Allah and to praise Allah for what He guided you to Islam and favored you in. Allah Azza wa Jal will boast about you to the angels. Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will mention you to the angels, boasting. Look at what my slaves are doing. That is how pleasing it is to Allah Azza wa Jal. And there is another hadith that I want to mention to you. And this hadith is the hadith of Abu Darda. It has many, many uh, references for it and many, many different wordings. But I will just mention this one to you. This is, I'm going to take you the wording from Sunan Ibn Majah. And in Ibn Majah, it is hadith number 228. And that is that Abu Darda was sitting in the masjid. The narrator says, Kathir ibn Qais, he says, I was sitting with Abu Darda in the masjid in Damascus. And a man came to him and he said to him, Ya Abu Darda, Ataytuka min al-madinati madinati rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
لحديث بلغني أنك تحدث به عن النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم He said, O Abu Darda, I came to you in Damascus all the way from Medina, the city of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa the city of the, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa for the sake of a single hadith that it has reached me that you are telling the people about, you are giving the people, you are, you are telling the people about a hadith from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa he said, you didn't come for any business, like it wasn't like you were coming to Damascus for some business and you just came to see me. He said, no. He said, you didn't come for any other reason. You didn't come for anything other than, than to come for a single hadith that you heard that I was narrating from the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. قَالَ لَا He said, no. قَالَ فَإِنِّي سَمِعْتُ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ sallallahu alayhi wa sallam يَقُولِ He said, I heard the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say, مَنْ سَلَقَ طَرِيقًا يَلْتَمِسُ فِيهِ عِلْمًا سَهَّلَ اللَّهُ لَهُ طَرِيقًا إِلَى الْجَنَّةِ Whoever sets out on a path seeking knowledge thereby, Allah makes his path to Jannah easy. وَإِنَّ الْمَلَائِكَةِ لَتَضَعُ عَجْنِحَتَهَا رِضًا لِطَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ And the angels, they lower their wings out of pleasure for what the student of knowledge does. I, when the student of knowledge, when the angel sees the student of knowledge studying Islam, the angel lowers their wings out of contentment for what this person is doing. وَإِنَّ طَالِبَ الْعِلْمِ يَسْتَغْفِرُ لَهُ مَنْ فِي السَّمَاءِ وَالْأَرْضِ حَتَّى الْحِيْتَانِ فِي الْمَاءِ And the student of knowledge, the most common wording here is the scholar. In this narration of Ibn Majah, the student of knowledge, but the more common wording in the hadith is the scholar. Forgiveness is sought for them by everything in the heavens and the earth, even the fish in the sea. Meaning everything in the heavens and the earth. Even the fish in the sea spend their time seeking forgiveness for the person who studies Islam or for the scholar. And the virtue of the scholar over the worshipper. Who is the worshipper? The worshipper, the ordinary Muslim who is worshipping Allah to the best of their ability. And the scholar, the person who is studying Islam and learning and practicing what they have learnt and they have gone beyond the minimum that you need just to be able to worship Allah. The virtue of the scholar over the worshipper is like the virtue of the moon over the rest of the stars. In some narrations, the virtue of the moon on Laylat al-Badr, on the, on the night when the moon is full. وَإِنَّ الْعُلَمَاءَ هُمْ وَرَثَةُ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ And the scholars, they are the inheritors of the prophets. إِنَّ الْأَنْبِيَاءَ لَمْ يُوَرِّثُوا دِينَارًا وَلَا دِرْهَمًا إِنَّمَا وَرَّثُ الْعِلْمِ فَمَنْ أَخَذَهُ أَخَذَ بِحَظٍ وَافِرٍ The prophets did not leave behind an inheritance of dirham or dinar, of gold and silver coins. 
or silver and gold coins. But they left behind knowledge. So whoever seizes this knowledge and takes this knowledge has indeed has taken a huge portion. It is said a huge portion of what the prophets left or a huge portion of reward. They have taken a huge portion or they're what we call also what we call at your, you know, people say your nasib. You have a good nasib. You have a good, you know, I don't want to use the word luck because the word luck doesn't, in English, it doesn't translate properly. But you have a very good, you are very fortunate. This is also the meaning of hadhin, wafir, has taken a great share of fortune, a great amount of good in their life. One more hadith, and I will only quote you a part of it because we have little time. This is a hadith from Abi Hurairah and it's narrated by Imam Muslim. And you can find this hadith in the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi rahimahullah ta'ala. And I'm just going to quote you a part of the hadith. And this part of the hadith is that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said, وَمَنْ سَلَكَ طَرِيقًا يَلْتَمِسُ فِيهِ عِلْمًا سَهَّلَ اللَّهُ لَهُ Whoever sets out on a path seeking knowledge of Islam thereby, Allah makes his path to Jannah easy. And no people gather together in a house from the houses of Allah, reciting the book of Allah and studying this book among them, studying the Quran among them. Except that tranquility descends upon them. And the angels and mercy envelops them. And the angels surround them. Mercy surrounds them. The mercy of Allah envelops them. And the angels surround them. And Allah mentions them with the angels that are with him. And the last part is particularly important with regard to what we said about knowledge and action. Whoever's action slows them down their lineage will not speed them up and the meaning of this is that a person who is from the the family of the prophet وسلم, or from a very high lineage this doesn't matter if their actions are not in accordance with the book of allah and the sunnah of the messenger but we can make it more general than that and say that Whoever's action slows them down, the amount of knowledge that they have gathered, the amount of ayat they have memorized, their status, their lineage, their wealth, nothing will speed you up if your actions slow you down. The number of the hadith in Sahih Muslim, I don't have, but in Al-Arba'een al-Nawawiyah, in the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, it's hadith number 36. Because I was quoting it from the 40 hadith. Okay, so insha'Allah ta'ala let's uh, begin with the 
some of the text of the book. We have around about an hour and 10 minutes, so we're not going to be able to cover a huge amount. But inshallah ta'ala, we will cover as much as we can. In terms of questions, uh, the way that we want to do this with regard to the course is that uh, if you have any questions, just make a note of them. And then at the end of the class, I will leave some time for questions inshallah. Normally, the Q&A can go on quite some time. So what we usually say to people is, I, I leave a little bit of time for Q&A at the end. When we reach 9 o'clock and the class is over, then anyone is free to leave who, who wishes to leave and whoever wishes to stay and has questions, we will try to answer as many as we can. Bearing in mind that there are a lot of people here today. So it's, it will be hard to answer questions from everybody. But inshallah ta'ala, we will try to answer as many questions as we can. Maybe another half an hour on top of the class time or something like that. Uh, and the sisters are also able to ask questions. There is a procedure for that. I believe, and the sisters will correct me if I'm wrong, that they're going to write them down on paper. And then some of the Kalima sister volunteers, the staff, they're going to send them to me on this uh, screen here. So I'll be able to view them, inshallah. Uh, and from there, inshallah, we will answer those questions. But we will answer them at the end of the class, inshallah. Okay. So let's go on to... Uh, this uh, topic that we have, the adornment of the student of knowledge. The first category, and you have to be aware of what we want to achieve from this. Uh, what I want to achieve from this book, and I do recommend you read the whole book. What I want to achieve from this book, inshallah ta'ala, is two things. I want you to appreciate some of the etiquettes and manners that are befitting for a student of knowledge to have. And the second thing that I want you to do is I want you to understand how to seek knowledge. And the very first point that the Sheikh mentions with regard to etiquettes of the student themselves is that knowledge is worship. And the most important thing that you need to take from this, that knowledge is worship, the single most important thing that you need to understand from this statement that knowledge is worship, is that because seeking knowledge is worship, because seeking knowledge is worship, the conditions of worship apply to seeking knowledge. Because seeking knowledge is worship, the conditions of worship apply to seeking knowledge. What are those conditions of worship? There are two conditions of worship. The first condition of worship, and the Sheikh, he mentions this. وَعَلَيْهِ فَإِنَّ شَرْتَ الْعِبَادَةِ and based upon this, then the conditions of worship are number one, ikhlas and niyyati lillah. Make your intention only for Allah. Because of the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal, وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُوا اللَّهَ مُخْلِصِينَ لَهُ الدِّينَ حُنَفَاءَ Surah Al-Bayyina, ayah number five. 
وما أمروا إلا ليعبدوا الله مخلصين له الدين حنفا سورة البينة آية نمبر 5 They were only commanded to worship Allah making the religion sincerely for him alone Hunafa يعني in absolute monotheism this ayah is a fundamental evidence that sincerity is essential in every act of worship notice that Allah Azza wa Jal said وَمَا أُمِرُوا we did not command them to do anything else. The command that you have been given that is above every command. I need to worship Allah Azza wa Jal alone, to be Hunafa. The command that is above every command that you worship Allah sincerely for Him alone. And this is the clearest evidence that all of Islam, the entire message of Islam from the beginning to the end is to worship Allah Azza wa and to worship Him alone without making any partner with Him. To the extent that Allah said, We didn't tell them to do anything else. To worship Allah. Make the religion for Him alone. Hunafa, monotheism, absolutely pure, worshipping Allah and not making any partner. And they perform the prayer and give the zakah, and this is the, this is the upright religion, this is the right way, the right religion. So in every act of worship, you must make your worship sincerely for Allah Azza wa and that means it must be free from so many things. It must be free from It must be free from showing off to be seen or to be heard. Arriya is showing off so people see you, and a sum'a showing off so that people hear you or hear of you. Let nobody come to say that, look, I'm coming and I've studied this and I've done this. You come for the sake of Allah and Allah Azza wa Jal alone. From this is what the Shaykh mentions. Hubb al-Zuhur. Kahubb al-Zuhur. The love of being famous or the love of being seen among people. You know, loving to be like the one who is in front of everyone, loving to be the one who is above everyone, loving to the one who has to be the one who has a special status. And seeking to beat your, you know, your, your, uh, the people who are attending, the people, your colleagues and, you know, the people of your generation, you know, trying to basically be the one who is above everybody else. I'm better than you. And and you know using studying as a means to do this and that like you know someone's got an intention that I want to go so that the teacher makes a mistake and then I want to you know 
make a highlight of that so that I can say this and I can say that. You know, people come with wrong reasons, wrong intentions. Minjahin Aumal, or a person wants to have status in the sight of the people or wants to have wealth. Because some people think if I study, maybe I can do this degree, then I can get a job, I can get paid, I can get wealth. Or they want people to treat them with more respect. Or they want to be heard. Or they want people to praise them and to say good things about them. Or they want the, the, the eyes of the people to turn towards them. All of these things are the things which interfere with a person's niyyah. That interfere with a person's niyyah and a person's sincerity towards Allah Azza wa Jalla. And it's narrated from Sufyan. Rahimahullah Ta'ala. That he said... I was given understanding of the Qur'an. He said, I was given understanding of the Qur'an. And when I accepted a gift, any, a wage for it, it was taken away from me. And there is another narration from Sufyan al-Thawri rahimahullah ta'ala in which he said ma alajtu shay'an ashadda alayya min niyyati I never wrestled with anything harder than my intention a person should never ever believe that their intention is sincere they should always question themselves they should always fight against themselves in their intention so this is the first point with regard to the intention. And the second thing that it must have, the second condition that seeking knowledge must have is it must have al-mutaba'ah. It must be in accordance with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa for the hadith of Aisha radiallahu anha in Al-Bukhari and Muslim and I don't have the reference for it but I find it by the end again you can find it in the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi Man amila amalan laysa alayhi amruna fahuwa rad Whoever does an action that is not in accordance with what we have brought it will be rejected and in the wording of Al-Bukhari, or in the wording of also Bukhari and Muslim, مَنْ أَحْدَثَ فِي أَمْرِنَا هَذَا مَا لَيْسَ مِنْهُ فَهُوَ Whoever introduces something new into this religion of ours, it will be rejected. In the wording of Muslim on his own, مَنْ عَمِلَ عَمَلًا لَيْسَ عَلَيْهِ أَمْرُنَا فَهُوَ Whoever does an action which is not in accordance with what we have brought, it will be rejected. And so every single act of worship has two conditions. The first is sincerity for Allah Azza wa Jal. And the second is that it must be in accordance with the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam.
And this is something which I want to highlight the issue of following the Sunnah. Because a lot of people treat knowledge as though it is a secular pursuit. So we kind of study Islam the way that we study medicine, engineering, IT, whatever. Because we kind of lump it together. Well, it's learning and learning is like I've learned, you know, I've learned how to be a, a computer programmer. Therefore, the same way that I learned how to do that, I'm going to learn how to study Islam. Because learning is learning. But that's not the case. Learning is an ibadah. Learning Islam is an ibadah. Studying Islam is an act of worship. And if studying Islam is an act of worship, what does that mean? It means that we have to do it the way that the Prophet and those who followed him from his companions and the later generations did. We can't invent our own way of studying. And this is one of the big problems that you find in studying today. In fact, it could easily be called one of the biggest problems. Among the biggest of problems that people have studying today is that they don't follow the methodology of the Prophet ﷺ in their studies. And the Shaykh is going to mention that methodology and we're going to come to it insha'Allah ta'ala later on. But I want you guys to recognize that there is a methodology of studying. There is a way to study, which is the way the Prophet ﷺ taught the companions and the way they taught the tabi'een and the way that the tabi'oon studied and they taught the, those who followed them. These generations, they studied in a way that is measurable and is repeatable. You can measure it, you can understand it, and you can repeat it. Not to the, the level that they did, but the basic framework, you can implement that framework. If you try to study it the way that you study the other branches of knowledge which are worldly, then you are likely to suffer a degree of failure, not because you are not putting the time and the effort in, but because you're not studying in the right way. And this is linked to the second point that the Sheikh made. Uh, and I'm going to start to go through the points a little bit quickly so that we can get to the next section. The second point that the Sheikh made, be upon the path of the righteous predecessors. And that is because Allah Azza wa Jal sent down the Quran and with it he sent the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa and he commanded us to follow the Qur'an and the Sunnah. And the Qur'an commands us to follow the Sunnah. The Qur'an commands us to follow the Sunnah. In many, many, many ayat. I will just give you one ayat. Allah Azza wa Jal said, وَمَا آتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُذُوهُ وَمَا نَهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُوهُ 
Whatever the Messenger of Allah gives you, take it. I don't have the ayah number. Whatever the Messenger of Allah gives you, take it. And whatever He forbids you from, abstain from it. Whatever the Messenger gives you, take it. Whatever the Messenger forbids you from, keep away from it. So we as Muslims have been commanded with no doubt, and nobody can argue this point, that we have been commanded to follow the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa And there can be no doubt that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa commanded us to follow the way of his companions. And that following the companions is one of the distinguishing signs of a Muslim who is upon the correct methodology. A Muslim who is upon the correct methodology has many signs. There is no label, you can't put a label because if you put a label, somebody can steal the label. Like people said Ahlul Sunnah and then a group of people came who were from Ahlul Sunnah and they who were not from Ahlul Sunnah and they stole the name and they said we are Ahlul Sunnah. So labels are not going to help us here. We need to understand the principle. What defines a good Muslim and there's nothing wrong with using a label but what defines a good Muslim is to be upon the book of Allah following the Quran and following the Sunnah because there are a whole bunch of people who claim to follow the Quran but they don't follow the Sunnah from the Rafida and the Khawarij and a large group of people who rejected all of the Sunnah or part of the Sunnah. The Shia rejected or the majority of the Shia rejected most of the Sunnah or all of the Sunnah. The Khawarij rejected a large amount of the Sunnah, particularly the Sunnah that was narrated from those people who sided with Ali or Muawiyah radiallahu anhuma. So the ancient, the traditional Khawarij of old rejected a huge amount of the Sunnah. So one of the signs that you're upon the right path is you follow the Quran and you follow the Sunnah. But there are still a whole bunch of people on that path who are not correct. So what is the final distinguishing thing which separates you from those people? When you said you follow the Quran, you separated yourself from the people who follow the Torah and the Injil. When you said you follow the Sunnah, you separated yourself from the Rafidah and the Khawarij and the people who rejected the Sunnah and the Mu'tazila and the other groups who rejected parts of the Sunnah. When you said that you follow the companions of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, then you separated yourself from the people who follow their desires and they follow innovations and they follow newly introduced matters in the religion. And that is why the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, فَإِنَّهُ مَنْ يَعِشْ مِنْكُمْ فَسَيَرَ اخْتِلَافًا كَثِيرًا فَعَلَيْكُمْ بِسُنَّتِي وَسُنَّةِ الْخُلَفَاءِ الرَّاشِدِينَ الْمَهْدِيِينَ مِنْ بَعْدِ عَضُّوا عَلَيْهَا بِالنَّوَاجِذِ وَإِيَّاكُمْ وَمُحْتَثَاتِ الْأُمُورِ فَإِنَّ كُلَّ مُحْدَثَةٍ بِدْعَةٍ وَكُلَّ بِدْعَةٍ ضَلَالَةٍ أَوْ كَمَا قَالَ صَلَى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ And you can find this hadith as well in the Arba'een, the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, uh, in which the Prophet said that whoever lives for a long time among you is going to see a great amount of differing. So stick to my sunnah. If you see the people differing, this guy is worshipping this, this guy is saying this, this guy says this is right, this guy says this is wrong. Stick to my sunnah and the sunnah of the Khulafa al-Rashidin, the Sahaba. Bite onto it with your molar teeth. 
In a narration, tamassaku biha, hold onto it, bite onto it with your molar teeth, and avoid everything that is newly introduced into this religion. For every newly introduced matter is an innovation, and every innovation is misguidance. So it's extremely important that we stick not only to the Book of Allah and to the Sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ, but to the way of the companions. And this is what differs or what distinguishes us from all of the other groups and sects. Name whichever sect you wish. You will not be able to find a group of people who follow the Quran and the Sunnah and the companions and those who follow them in good except Ahlul Sunnah, the people upon the Sunnah. No matter who uses whatever label or name, you simply compare them to this. Bring me your group and bring me the book of Allah and the Sunnah and the action of the companions. And let me see where do you stand in relation to this. Allah Azza wa Jal told us in Surah Al-Baqarah in the last page of the, the first juz. فَإِنْ آمَنُوا بِمِثْلِ مَا آمَنْتُمْ بِهِ فَقَدْ اِهْتَدَوْا If they believe as you companions believe, then they are guided. وَإِنْ تَوَلَّوْا فَإِنَّمَا هُمْ فِي شِقَاقٍ And if they turn away from the guidance of you companions, how do we know it's the companions? Because Allah said, Amantum, all of you people, you believers, you companions. If, you, if they believe as you believe, they are guided. And if they turn away from your belief, then they are only in disarray and they are in shiqaq. They have moved away from the guidance of the Prophet. Allah did not say if they believe as the Messenger believes. But he said, if they believe as you all, you group of companions believe, then they are rightly guided. And these are just some of the evidences for following the path of a Salaf al-Salih, the path of the righteous predecessors. And the meaning of the word Salaf are those people who came before. And the opposite is al-Khalaf. You have a Salaf and al-Khalaf. A Salaf are those people who came before you. And al-Khalaf are those people who come after. And from this is the word Khalifa, who is the one who comes after someone else. The one who comes after somebody else is named Khalifa, the one who comes afterwards from Khalaf. So you have the Salaf and the Khalaf. The Salaf are those people who came before and the Khalaf are those people who came after. And when we say the word Salaf or the people who came before Salaf al-Salih, we mean the companions and those who followed them in good. We do not mean a particular label or group or jama'ah or whatever. We mean the companions and those people who followed them in good. Because the companions are our salaf. They are the people who our example who passed before. And the imams who followed them, the scholars who followed them, they are our example who passed before. And so all of the good in this religion is in following the salaf, in following the early generations the companions and those who followed them. And all of the evil in this ummah is in what the Khalaf innovated after them, what the people who came after them, who were not from the companions, who were not from the golden generations, and they introduced into Islam what was not a part of 
Islam. And that is why it is famously said, all of the good is in following the Salaf and all of the evil is in the innovations that were introduced by the Khalaf, by the people who came after them. And so the second point the Shaykh mentions, be upon the path of the companions and those who followed them in good, the righteous predecessors and those who followed them in good. We're going to go through very quickly uh, and just I'm going to make two or three points on each one only uh, on, the, on the next few points. Uh, always fearing Allah. Ultimately, we have to teach ourselves to fear Allah. We have to train ourselves to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. We can't train ourselves, and particularly when we talk about raising our children, can't raise our children to fear us. You know, be scared your mom and dad are going to do this. You have to raise your children to fear Allah and you have to train yourself to fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. One of the etiquettes of the student by which the student of knowledge distinguishes themselves from everybody else is you can see the fear of Allah in their speech, in their actions, in their mannerisms and their etiquettes. And that has so many applications to it. From the applications of fearing Allah is you fear Allah with regard to what you say. And you don't speak too quickly. You don't rush to explain something or to say something that you don't have knowledge about. This is a part of fearing Allah. And it's a part of having the actions which adorn the knowledge that you have being given by Allah Always being aware that Allah is watching you. This is our goal in terms of our Iman. The Prophet ﷺ divided Islam into Islam and Iman and Ihsan. The highest of which is Ihsan. What did he say about Ihsan in the hadith of Jibreel? That you should worship Allah as though you can see him. And even though you can't see him, you know that he can see you. This is being aware that Allah is watching you. Knowing that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala watches what you do when the doors are closed and the lights are off and nobody can see you, Allah sees you. And this is a warning against a particular difficulty with regard to students and that is being a person who is different on the outside and different on you know, the inside, you know, like a person who is on the outside when he's among the people, he behaves like Talib al-Ilm. And when he goes home with his family, he doesn't behave like a, like a student of knowledge. So you see him, you know, like he'll tell the people, don't do this, don't do this, don't go here, don't go there. But when you see him, if you could take a CCTV camera and watch him when he's on his own or when he's with his family you see the person doesn't implement those things this is a lack of knowing that Allah is watching you and a lack of awareness that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching you and there's a, a, a small benefit in this that I think is important uh, and that is the concept that there is a link between knowing Allah and between obedience to Allah and being a good Muslim, having istiqama, being an upright Muslim. There's a link between knowing Allah and between being 
uh, a good Muslim, being an upright Muslim. The more you know Allah, the more that should link to you being aware that Allah is watching you, changing your actions, becoming a better person, being an upright Muslim. When you know that Allah Azza wa Jal is watching you. To know that Allah is watching you, you have to know Allah. And that is why knowing Allah is an essential part of your studies. And we are going to cover in the course, inshallah ta'ala, modules relating to knowing Allah. But also I'll just inform you that there is a class on a Friday night, every other Friday. The class takes place every Friday. But this topic happens every other Friday. And that is the names of Allah topic. You can find information on the Kalima website. And if you think it's beneficial for you to catch up on those videos and then come and start attending the class, you will see it will have a big effect on you as a person, inshallah. Because when you know more about Allah, it leads you to be more obedient to Allah. The Shaykh mentioned humility and leaving arrogance and pride. Whoever lowers themselves before Allah, Allah raises them up. There is no doubt about this. Whoever lowers themselves before Allah, Allah raises them up. The more you raise yourself, the more Allah lowers you. And the more you lower yourself, the more Allah raises you. Everyone knows the story of Iblis. Everyone knows what Allah said about him. He refused and he was arrogant and he was from the disbelievers. And there's a big link between arrogance and between disbelief. In fact, if you were to look at atheism, you could honestly say that atheism is built upon certain pillars. And one of the pillars that atheism is built upon is arrogance. I never met an atheist that wasn't arrogant. Never. And I mean that in, in I don't mean that in a in a, a, a horrible way in the sense that they were you know that they were really horrible sort of evil personalities but I never met an atheist that wasn't arrogant because every atheist you meet he says if there was a God God would have guided me and God didn't guide me so there is no God that's the principle of atheism that's what atheism is built upon it's built upon arrogance because their role model is Iblis their role model is Iblis who was arrogant and he disbelieved. And so arrogance and pride will never ever ever benefit you in the sight of Allah Azza wa Jal. The more you lower yourself, the more uh, Allah Azza wa Jal will raise you in the sight of the people. And like Umar ibn al-Khattab said to the reciters of the Quran, all reciters of the Quran raise your heads lift up your heads humility or he said humility or taqwa is here in the heart raise your heads don't think that humility means to you know lower your head and put your hand out like this this is not humility humility is in the heart if your heart is humble and your heart is lowered before Allah, naturally you yourself will be a person who is humble and who is, has humility in your actions. 
If your heart is full of pride, it doesn't matter how much you bow your head, you will still be full of pride. And the people will see it in you. Even if you bow your head and even if you divert your gaze and even if you, you know, behave like you are really, really humble. Humility is in the heart. It's about how you see yourself, not how you present yourself to other people. It doesn't matter how you present yourself to somebody else. I can present myself that I'm a really modest, really humble, really gentle, easygoing person. But if I don't believe that about myself in my heart, it will not show on my limbs. The Sheikh mentioned contentment and zuhud. Contentment and zuhud. Being content with what you have been given by Allah Azza wa Jal and zuhud, and zuhud we'll talk about very briefly. Like I said, I'm just zooming through these because I want to get to the next uh, section. Contentment and zuhud. Zuhud is important. The essence of the word zuhud is leaving that which Allah Azza wa Jal made haram. This is the most important kind of zuhud. There is no kind of zuhud more important than abandoning the haram in favor of what Allah made halal. But perhaps a more generic definition of the word zuhud would be leaving those things which are permissible for you that don't get you closer to Allah or that don't benefit you in the sight of Allah. And from that, there are many things which are permissible. It's permissible to have a nice, big, expensive car as long as you pay your zakah and you know you haven't uh, bought it using riba and you know you've, you know, you've fulfilled all of the, the conditions, you've given your zakah, you've done everything that you need to do. There's nothing wrong with having an expensive car. But you have to ask yourself, does buying that expensive car make me nearer to Allah or not? And zuhud is about leaving, at least voluntary zuhud, is about leaving those things which don't benefit you even though they are permissible. You might go and play sports every week. Nothing wrong with that. You play in a halal environment. You, know, you wear halal clothing. But you have to ask yourself, is this thing that I'm doing bringing me nearer to Allah and zuhud is all about leaving the things that don't bring you near to Allah. Now they may be bringing you nearer to Allah. I'm giving those examples and I'm not giving them to say that they don't. Yeah, and you can play sports and it makes you healthy, it keeps you fit, you feel that you are able to perform your worship better, no issues there. But every action that you do, even if it is permissible, ask yourself, is it bringing me nearer to Allah or not? and make the changes necessary, either leaving it or changing it to make, it nearer, make you nearer to Allah For example, some of you may go out and play sports, you say sports are good for me and my health and fitness, but you may go with a group of people who swear and curse and get angry with one another and shout at each other and they don't have brotherhood between one another. This is not getting you nearer to Allah So perhaps you might wanna leave that and move to a group of people who are playing the sport who are not uh, like that or who are themselves students of knowledge and benefit one another and maybe tell each other about a hadith or tell each other about an ayah but ultimately the, the meaning of this is that if you are going to be a student of knowledge you are going to have to get rid of some of the things that ordinary people are allowed to have you are going to have to leave 
some of the things that ordinary people don't leave. Those ordinary people, they leave. You know, they, they, you know, they buy their expensive houses and cars and they live in luxury and they do what they... Alhamdulillah, it's halal for them, there's no issue. You as a student of knowledge may have to sacrifice some of that for the sake of getting near to Allah And if that's what you have to do, then that is what you have to do. And that is the meaning of zuhd. Only taking from the dunya what you need. Some of the scholars defined it like this. There's lots of definitions for zuhd. Some of the scholars defined it as only taking from the dunya what you need. And the examples of zuhd, if one of you reads uh, some of the examples of zuhd, and I don't mean the examples of the Sufiya, which have exaggeration, that the guy didn't eat for 40 years or something like that. But the examples of zuhd among the Salaf al-Salih, you will see examples that are just breathtaking. No doubt the zuhd of the Prophet ﷺ before everyone else. How did he used to live? How did he used to forsake luxury and forsake his, the things in the dunya that were presented to him and he refused the dunya? The dunya was offered to him, he didn't want the dunya. He wanted what was in the akhirah. The companions followed him in this. Some of them would be given a bag of gold, they would give the entire bag in charity because they had no desire for what was in the dunya. They only took from the dunya what they needed to survive and everything else was put forward for the akhirah. It's easy to say it's difficult to do. And I don't sit here in front of you saying to you that I am Zahid, that I'm a person who abstains from the dunya and in, you know, subhanAllah, it's something that is a constant struggle. But just be aware that to be a student of knowledge, you need to have the concept that you will have to leave some of the mubahat, some of the permissible things for the sake of Allah If you want to be a serious student, you will have to leave some of the things which are halal for you in order to get nearer to Allah And that is a level above the ordinary person. For the ordinary person we say, zuhud for you is leaving the haram. You know, your zuhd is leaving the haram. Leave riba, leave, you know, uh, earning haram, spending haram, leave these things. This is your zuhd. For the student of knowledge, we say, your zuhd is their zuhd plus leaving the things which are permissible in order to get nearer to Allah or only taking from the dunya those things which you absolutely need. And if a person does this, wallahi subhanallah, and you'll see how your life changes even with a small amount of zuhd. And like I said, if you read the stories of the Salaf, you hear from zuhd something which is just unbelievable. Even from our scholars of our time, you hear examples of zuhd which are unbelievable. You can't imagine how a person could do that. And so we want to emphasize that the most important part of zuhd is leaving the haram but that you also have to leave those things which are permissible in order to get nearer to Allah and that is a commitment that every student of knowledge should aspire to. Adorning yourself with the splendor of knowledge and with good manners. These are two of the points the Shaykh mentioned. 
Ultimately, as we said, you have to adorn your knowledge with action. The more you act upon, the more your knowledge will benefit you. And likewise, the manners of the student of knowledge. There's nothing worse, and I remember an incident that happened to me. It happened to me uh, when I first went to seek knowledge before I was accepted in Islamic University of Medina. And I went to ask a, you know, a sheikh about something. And I waited at the end of the salah. I didn't want to interrupt the sheikh while he was making his adhkar. So I let him make his adhkar. He stood up to leave. And when I saw that he wasn't busy, I just stepped over and I said, Salamu alaikum sheikh. And he replied in a way that was very, very like harsh. You know, he said, Wa alaikum salam, go over there. I don't, uh, go and ask somebody else. And I'm sure he was just at that day, day, he was just maybe a little bit upset or he's a little bit busy with something. I'm sure about that. But the point is that that left a bitter taste in my mouth for months and months and months. It left a bitter taste in my mouth because there was a person who I looked up to who I admired, who I wanted to try to emulate, and yet the manners that I saw from that person were not the manners that befit a person of knowledge. He could have been busy and, and he could have stopped and said, Wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. I'm so sorry, I'm, I'm just, I have to leave. There is somebody over there, you can ask them the question. Manners are not difficult to have. It's not difficult to be kind to people. But sadly, you see, and it's one, of the, it's one of the saddest things when you see a person of knowledge, but they're not a person of manners. And that doesn't mean they have no knowledge. It doesn't mean that they're not going to be beloved to Allah Azza wa Jal. But the heaviest thing on the scales on the day of judgment will be good manners. You need to have good manners in your, the way you deal with people. Good manners, even in the way you, you know, the way you drive, the way you... You know, the way you walk, the way you speak to people. How many times did Allah Azza wa Jal deal with the way people walk in the Quran? And Allah said, The servants of the most merciful who walk on the earth with humility. And Allah said, You know, don't walk on the earth with arrogance. Don't be arrogant. These are all matters of manners and akhlaq. Good manners. The Prophet said, I was only sent to perfect good manners. I.e. good manners with Allah by worshipping Him alone and good manners with the people. And good manners are essential in da'wah. People will not love you even if you speak the truth, if your manners are not kind. There are so many examples of the manners of the Prophet In one example, a Bedouin came and he grabbed the Prophet by the, the collar to the point that the Prophet was choked. And he said, give me some of the money, give me some wealth. When, the Prophet, when he let go of the Prophet the Prophet smiled at him and gave him what he asked for. These are the examples of makarimul akhlaq the highest standard of manners and we all need to aspire towards that good manners good treatment of others be an example for people 
the qualities of masculinity the Sheikh speaks about the qualities of masculinity what the Sheikh means by that is that there are certain qualities that are associated with you know sort of um, you would say what are known to be sort of manly qualities chivalry you know being honorable being brave being strong being wise these are all elements of what you would say you know like the ideal you know kind of the ideal man and these to a certain extent many of them apply to to women as well uh, and uh, you know the sheikh perhaps is speaking here to the ghalib you know the most of the he's speaking to the men that he or the brothers that he is teaching but what we would say is the qualities the good qualities which define men and women i.e. the qualities which define the, the companions the male and female companions qualities like bravery honesty speaking the truth you know like we say for the men chivalry you know like you open the door for a lady you you know you let the lady pass you let the lady go first in the queue you know these kind of qualities of manlyhood of being sort of like we say rujula yani being a man being a real man because sadly in these days we have come across a time where men are encouraged not to be men and women are encouraged not to be women and you guys are somewhat protected from this in dubai but subhanallah and if you look at the west if you look particularly at the us and the uk and places like that there are now huge efforts in schools to take boys and turn them into girls they're now protesting because stores in the market have a boys section and a girls section and they now say that these stores by law are going to be forced to make the boys toys in the girls section and the girls toys in the boys section so the boys will play with dolls and the girls will play with whatever cars or guns or whatever for the purpose of making boys into girls and girls into boys if you're going to be a student of knowledge embody those qualities of ar-rujula of really being a man chivalry honesty bravery you know when you hear about the companions the people of old you think you know the great commanders the great leaders military leaders of the muslims they were brave they were honorable they stuck to their word if they said something they meant it if they promised something they fulfilled it they were always standing up for the truth they protected the innocent they defended the people who needed their help you know these kind of masculine qualities this rujula and likewise for the women those qualities that the women were known by from the sahabiyat and those who followed them in good chastity of modesty of you know having a good reputation of kindness of generosity these kind of qualities that people say that's a real man or that's a real woman who has those qualities embody those qualities in yourself forsaking luxury we've spoken about keeping away from gatherings of forbidden and foolish speech this is also extremely important that you keep away from the gatherings of foolish speech you know subhanallah there are gatherings we all know there are places you go where the people are gathered with foolish speech it might be 
going out somewhere, like going to a mall where you know that there is a, some people are gathered there doing some haram or something like that. You don't join in. You might have to go there to get something. You get what you need and you go. But going to the people where people are gathered for, for haram or gathered for foolish speech. Or it might be gatherings in your own home or in your families or relatives' homes where you go to a relative's house and they're just going to sit there and backbite somebody. Don't sit in those gatherings. Remember what we said in the beginning, you're not an ordinary student. You're not an ordinary person anymore. You're a talib ilm, student of knowledge. You're not an ordinary person. Don't sit in the gatherings, don't be seen in the gatherings where haram is going on, where people are doing foolish things. Keeping away from commotion. And I'm going to highlight this one as well. Because particularly, you know, subhanAllah, in our time, in every time there are commotions. In every time there are some things which make, you know, like which cause a, a fitna among the people. And they cause like a, they cause a commotion, a, a disturbance among the people. And even among the students of knowledge, the shaitan puts some things that cause commotion among the people. Some qila wa qal, he said and she said, and some tahazzub, you know, like this guy said this and I'm on his team and I don't, and some, you know, like commotion becomes among the students. So people start getting into arguments. What's your position on this? And what's your thoughts about this? And what do you think about this? And what are you, are you with him? Or are you with, leave all of these issues of commotion. Leave all of these issues of commotion. Ask the people of knowledge. Go back to the people of knowledge and ask them. Instead of having the students among themselves, discussing and debating and just making a, a ruckus and a commotion among each other. And likewise with the ordinary people. Anything that would cause commotion among the ordinary people. For example, when you're praying in the masjid, maybe some people cover the hadith of the Prophet ﷺ to pray in your slippers. خَالِفُ الْيَهُودَ وَالنَّصَارَىٰ be different from the Jews and the Christians and pray in your shoes. So maybe a person comes into the masjid and causes a commotion, you know, and the people start to shout at them and the people start to get angry with them and the people start to say, what religion are you following? And so on. So you avoid things which cause a commotion, things which cause a, a disturbance among the people, but especially among the students. Because sadly, we are in an age of where it's fashionable for the students to take place or to take part in qila wa qali he said and she said and this scholar said this about this scholar and that scholar said this about this scholar and so on and so forth there is a truth and a falsehood in that i'm not saying that it's wrong there is a truth in some of what is said but ultimately making a commotion among yourself is not going to benefit Go to the people of knowledge and ask them and they will give you an answer as to who is right and who is wrong and they will clarify this commotion. Don't be a people that make a commotion and make a trouble for yourselves. Adorn yourself with gentleness. The Prophet ﷺ praised ar-rifq. Ar-rifq, gentleness. He said that rifq, gentleness, was never put into anything except that it made it beautiful. And it was never taken out of anything except that it made it ugly. Gentleness is something beautiful. Whenever you put gentleness in something, it makes it beautiful. Whenever you take gentleness out of something, it makes it ugly. And we know that the worst 
or among the worst of Bani Adam was Fir'aun. And yet Allah Azza wa Jal said to Musa and Harun, فَقُولَا لَهُ قَوْلًا لَيِّنًا لَعَلَّهُ يَتَذَكَّرْ أَوْ يَخْشَى Say to him a gentle word, a soft word. Perhaps he will remember or fear Allah. And so, as it is said, whoever you are speaking to, you are not better than Musa and they are not worse than Fir'aun. Whoever you are speaking to, whoever you are addressing, however bad they are, you are not better than Musa and they are not worse than Fir'aun. And Musa was commanded to say to Fir'aun, قَوْلًا لَيِّنًا A gentle word, a soft word, a gentle speech. So be gentle with people. Yes, there are times you need to use harshness and that will be covered. There is no doubt there are times when you need to use harshness. You need to be a bit firmer and a bit stricter. But ultimately, that is hikmah and Allah gives that hikmah to whoever he wishes. Sheikh mentioned contemplation, thinking about things. Don't rush to have an opinion. I'm going to sort of have a little rant about something else that I find troubling in this time. We're living in a time of instant communication. You have to respond now. You know WhatsApp and all the rest. If somebody sends you a message, you have to respond right now within one minute. If you don't respond within one minute, why didn't you respond to my WhatsApp message? I can see you got two ticks, why haven't you answered? This is the situation we're living in. Where we have to respond right now to everything. As a talibul ilm, I'm not saying you shouldn't respond to people's messages. <laughs> For those of you who know me know that I'm not very good at responding to people's messages. But what I do want you to do is to contemplate before you speak. Think before you give an answer. Even in a class like this, it's tempting for me just to say something. But if I need some time to think, I'm going to take 30 seconds, look it up, make sure that I got the right thing that I wanted to say and say it to you. Even if I have to take a 30 second or a one minute break from speaking, while we check it. But you contemplate and think about things. Think about masail. You know, stop thinking about things of like, you know, as an as a ordinary person, you think about things in terms of the rajah. What is the right thing to do? Okay, the right thing to do is put your hands on your chest in prayer. Okay, fine. I put my hands on my chest in prayer. That's the end of it. That's for the ordinary person. For the talib al-ilm, you want to ask yourself, what's the proof? You want to ask yourself, what are the different opinions? You want to ask yourself, why is this opinion more weighty than this opinion? You want to think about things and contemplate. Having said that, that contemplation should not leave you or take you away from doing the right thing. Sadly, we saw some students like this. When they started to contemplate, they started to take everybody's opinion and do whatever they, their, their, their nafs desired. So you would see them not praying properly, not fasting properly and they would say there's an opinion from the scholars there's an opinion for almost everything almost anything you can find an opinion that it's halal except for the most you know fundamental things in Islam almost anything you can find an opinion about the matters of ijma' the matters of consensus are very small very few so just because you're contemplating and you're experiencing different opinions and different ideas and different evidences don't allow that to push you 
to become weak in your ibadah and you start doing the wrong thing. Separate between your learning and your action. This is one area where you have to separate. I might know three opinions for a particular issue. But that doesn't mean I do it in three different ways. I do it the right way. But I learn those opinions and I contemplate, I reflect upon the evidences, I reflect upon the Quran as Allah told us to reflect upon. For you to reflect upon his ayat, for you to think about them, have to debbar. Steadfastness and making sure of things is very closely related. Steadfastness and making sure of things. And the most essential ayah in this regard is the ayah in Surah Al-Hujurat. In which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu in jaakum fasiqun binaba'in fatabayyanu. In a qira'ah, which is other than the qira'ah of Hafs, I can't remember which qira'ah it is, the narration, the, the ayah is read, فَتَثَبَّتُوا يَا أَيُّهَا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا إِنْ جَاءَكُمْ فَاسِقٌ بِنَبَئٍ فَتَثَبَّتُوا The way we read it in the, in the riwayah of Hafs, and we're going to come the riwayat of the Qur'an are coming inshallah in a future lesson, the different qira'at of the Qur'an. فَتَبَيَّنُوا O you who believe, when there comes to you a disobedient person, with some news, make sure of it. Make it clear. When you get news about things, when you get information about things, فتبينوا, seek clarity. فتثبتوا, make sure of it. أن تصيبوا قوما بجهالة فتصبحوا على ما فعلتم نادمين. Otherwise, you might, you might harm a people or affect a people out of ignorance and then become regretful over what you've done. The ayah commands us to make sure of things before we jump into them. Especially when those things come from the narrations or the, they come from the, the reports of the majhoolin, the people who are majhool, we don't know where it came from, it's anonymous. Somebody said that someone said this about you. We don't follow somebody said. Who said, when did they say? Then go to them and say, did you say this? Don't be a person to rely upon rumors. And likewise, when the disobedient person, the person who you don't trust them, like the newspaper reporters, we don't trust the information they give us. They are not reliable, the majority of them. Most of them are fusaq. Most of them are extremely disobedient to Allah So when they bring us, especially the non-Muslims among them, when they bring us information, don't take the information that you get every day in a newspaper and believe it to be reliable. Make sure of it, especially if you're going to take action based on it. And especially over things like WhatsApp, how many times do we get messages on social media, on WhatsApp, etc., that this has been outlawed, this is going to be changed, now there's a new rule, this is going to happen, now they're going to kick everyone out, now they're going to let people come in, now they're going to do this, they're going to do that, the speeding fines have gone up, the, all of these different things people send to you. 
make sure of it. Because you might get angry and say, Allah, you know, take care of these people. How are they doing this? And you, then you realize that the information is not correct in the first place. And this happens so many times and even now it happens regularly. You get a news. Such and such a country has done this. Such and such a place is doing this. Such and such a person said this. Make sure of it. Otherwise, you will end up harming yourselves and others out of ignorance and you will be regretful. Especially in the masail of Islam, the matters of Islam and the matters which distinguish or which are fundamental to the Muslims. Be sure of things before you decide on that. And steadfastness as well, a thabat. Don't be a person who is like a leaf in the wind. Every time you hear somebody call to something, you go running. Don't be like a, per a person like this. Be a person who is thabit, who is solid. And I'm going to tell you something about this which I, I think is really important. If you ever look at an nawazil and nawazil are those calamities that happen that are like major calamities for the ummah like what is going on in syria and elsewhere you know these major calamities that the arab winter and all of these things i refuse to call it the arab spring the arab winter and all of these things that happened all of these things that people did these were from an nawazil from the major major calamities that have befallen this ummah when these calamities happen, you can see the difference between the major scholars and between the minor scholars and the Talibatul Ilm. The Talibul Ilm, one day he's out with a protest card, the next day he's in the house, the next day he's out, he doesn't know where he is. The scholars from the first day until the last day, they don't change their opinion. Now that's not saying they don't change it for the truth. They change it for the truth. But generally they are they knew the issue before it came they recognized it before it came and they recognized it after it went they said don't get involved in this thing whatever it was I'm not going to give any specific examples something happened they say don't get involved in this thing you see the Talibatul Ilm and the small shiyukh one day they say don't get involved the next day they say get involved one day they say halal one day they say haram this way this way flopping around like a fish out of water when you see the real scholars the senior scholars of which there are not many in this ummah the senior scholars wallah you see so much thabat they're so firm when you ask them about this issue before it became a big news item they said stay where you are and don't go then when it became a big news item they said stay where you are and don't go and they gave their evidences from the quran and from the sunnah and they have thabat they're steadfast so you want to try to develop steadfastness in yourself that doesn't mean that you become muta'asib you don't follow the truth that doesn't mean that you become muta'asib and you don't follow the truth no you follow the truth wherever it takes you but you don't be a person who every time somebody calls out a new opinion, you run to it. You are slow to move. But when you move, you move decisively. That is how the Talib al-Ilm should be.
But sadly, honestly, you only have to see the nawazil of the last 10 years and you can see how the minor, the smaller scholars and the talibatul ilm have unfortunately, and, and they're not to blame, they have, let, they have little knowledge. They have, you know, sometimes said this, sometimes said that, changed and gone and backwards and forwards and their students don't know what to do and you see people just all mixed up. And then after the event, they say, oh, we should not have told the people this. It became clear to us afterwards that we made a mistake. But when you see the people who are rasikhuna fil ilm, who are firmly grounded in knowledge, you see that they have thabat, they're steadfast. They give you an opinion based on knowledge and generally, unless they see some new evidence, they stick to that opinion and they give it with, you know, they're firm, they're like a rock. And that's why the scholars that you go to for nawazil, for the major issues of the ummah, the calamities, are not the same as the scholar you go to say, I divorced my wife three times, is she divorced or not? This you can take from any mufti, yani who walks in the street. But the nawazil, you only take from the kibar al-ulama. You only take from the major scholars. Because they are the ones who have a thabat. They are the ones who are like a rock in the storm. They don't roll around left and right and center, they stay in one place and they give you that advice. Okay, we now have the next part. And we're slightly behind time, but it's okay, inshallah, we might take 15 minutes more. This is gonna happen, guys, so I'm gonna just yeah, warn you in advance, it happens with me. How do we seek knowledge and how do we acquire it? And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna give you this in summary form. Uh, and it's a summary of what the Shaykh said and it's a summary of inshallah and what the, the scholars in general have said about seeking knowledge and of course you're all going to go back and read the book inshallah so inshallah so you're going to get all of the information that you need inshallah from there but I'm just going to take about 10 or 15 minutes to explain to you the methodology of seeking knowledge first of all we've established that seeking knowledge ikhwani it has a methodology it has a methodology, it has a way of doing it. And you have to attempt to follow that methodology as much as you can. The summary of that methodology is as follows. Islam can be divided into sub-topics. Islam is one big topic. But within Islam, you have many, let's call them sub-sciences. From among them, for example, tafsir, fiqh, for example, the Arabic language, which can be further divided into an nahu wasarf, grammar and morphology. You have all of these different sub-sciences. And we're going to cover most of them, inshallah, as, during the course. So we'll cover what the names are later. But you're aware that Islam is not just one big lump. It has sub-sciences. Now generally, when we give a general talk, we don't divide Islam into those sub-sciences. Like usually, we just give a talk about, you know, generally a talk about Birr al-Walidayn, we talk about Hadith, we talk about Ayat, we talk about, you know, we talk about statements, examples, stories, we talk about something from the seerah, we talk about something from fiqh, we mention a principle, we, and we, we just mix it all up. But when you are studying, you need to break up Islam into those sub-sciences. 
So we want you to keep for yourself a journal or a record of some kind, digital or in by hand, where you write down all of the sub-sciences of Islam. And those sciences can sometimes be further divided into other sciences. For example, you can divide Aqidah into, for example, issues relating to Allah's Lordship, and issues relating to Allah's names and attributes and issues relating to Allah's worship, for example. But in any case, you end up with a list of sub-sciences. In each of those sub-sciences, you need to study a minimum of three levels. Basic, intermediate, and advanced. Approximately. Some people do, four, do it in four, some people do it in three, some people do it in two. Roughly. You need to study things of different levels. Because the books of Islam are not all of one level. And you guys know that. The books of Islam are not all one level. So it's not the case that every book of Islam is a beginner's book. Or every book of Islam is an advanced book. So you are effectively dividing books by subject. And you are dividing books by the level that they're at. There are a certain class of books which are suitable for being what we would term primers. We call them primers because they're easy to memorize and learn and they cover an overview of the whole science. These are what you begin with first. You try to memorize, if you can, a primer in every single sub-science of Islam. And then you gradually increase the difficulty, starting with the most basic explanation, then a slightly more complicated explanation, then a slightly more complicated explanation, then maybe going to a slightly more advanced text, an intermediate level text, and a slightly more complicated explanation, then to a more advanced text and to an even more advanced explanation and so on. So the most important thing that you understand is that you divide Islam into its sub-sciences. The more you divide it, pretty much the better. So if you can divide it into sort of like a significant number, maybe 15, maybe 20 sub-sciences. In each one, you take yourself a primer. That primer should be something very small. It should be a well-recognized book, not a book that was written you know, last week. It should be a book that is well-recognized, ideally something classical, something small, that you can cover the major points within it. You study that and you try to memorize as much as possible. Why do you put more memorization on that than the later books? The later books are thick, they're big. And you can't, for a lot of people, you can't memorize them. Some people do. There are people who memorize Tafsir ibn Kathir, there are people who memorize Musnad Imam Ahmed. There are people who do this. But for most people, it's not possible. So for most of us, what do we do? For most of us, we memorize a small text which acts like a set of keys. Each line opens a door to lots of knowledge that you have learned and you've stored that in your brain, but you might not have memorized it word for word. When you recall the basic text, the basic primer, 
that allows you to then recall each point which you can then open up to large topics. And this is how you can see how the scholars work. You think, how does that scholar sit there and explain so much on one tiny issue? You know, the Sheikh comes and talks about one hadith and he talks about it for two hours and he brings so many things. Because you memorize the basics and then you understand all of that big explanation around it and you use the memorization of the basics to open the door to you to understanding the larger texts. It's very important in this that you follow two fundamental principles. Number one, that you are very strict about going in order. <laughs> the sub-sciences don't matter too much about the order. Like it doesn't matter too much if you do tafsir before you do hadith or you do hadith before you do tafsir. That's not as important. But what is very important is that you don't do a level, let's call it a level three book in hadith before you do a level one book in hadith or before you do a primer in hadith. Allahumma illa, one exception, is when you have an opportunity to do one of those books which you wouldn't normally get. For example, Sheikh so-and-so is coming to Dubai for a one-off lecture on this book. The book is a little bit too advanced for you, but the Sheikh is only coming this one time and it's a big opportunity. Then you can break the rules a little bit, go and attend, but try to store it in, in your brain without like bringing it to the front. Like just store it there so that when you've done the basics, you can go back to it and you can kind of remember what you've been taught. It really helps to have a journal or a log or a record of what you're doing. So for example, you have tafsir. Which books have you finished in tafsir? Which explanations? Some of them might be online. Some of them might be audio. Some of them might be in person. Some of them might, you might have had done exams on. Some of them you might not have done exams on. Some of them you might have just attended some lectures. Try to keep a record of what you've done. And this is where we come to the topic of the Shaykh. The Shaykh is very important. It said, Man kana shaykhuhu kitabuhu kana khata'uhu akthara min sawabi. Man kana shaykhuhu kitabahu kana khata'uhu akthara min sawabi. Whoever's Shaykh is his book, he will have more mistakes than he is right. You need to have people advising you who are more senior to you. Ideally, they should be shuyukh, scholars. Sometimes you can't get that, you just end up with Muhammad Tim. But in any case, you got stuck with me, so, you know, inshallah, this is from Mukafarat al Zunub. Allah will take your sins away because of it, inshallah. But the point is that Muhammad Tim is not basing this based on his own ideas because that wouldn't be worth studying. But based upon what the scholars of Islam have told us is beneficial to learn. So I'm kind of, if you like, like your translator between you and between the scholars of Islam to try to bring you these, this advice. And you show me your records. What have you studied? What have you, okay, I've done this book and this book. Which book should I do next? Okay, I have heard a scholar say, do this book. If I haven't heard, I'll go back to one of the shuyukh and ask them. One of the students at Kalima has done this book and this book. He wants to know which book should I do next? The Sheikh says, do this one next. Which explanation? Do the explanation of so-and-so. Which tape should I listen to? And so on and so forth. There are hierarchies of virtue in terms of where you study. Studying in a class is more virtuous than studying from a tape. 
And studying from a tape is better than studying from a book. And studying from a book, any, a quote, an explanation of a book is better than just studying from the text itself and, and making your own opinion, and so on and so forth. So ideally you want to attend a lecture. If you can't attend a lecture, then at least watch the video or the audio. If you can't catch the video or the audio that isn't available, then if you have some written notes, if you can't catch those, then you go to the, you know, the text itself. But when you are studying a book on your own, you should always make notes of things that don't make sense to you. And this is the last point that I'm going to make. Inshallah, we're going to cover this throughout the course anyway. Have a filter of information. I always think that having a filter is one of the best things that a student of knowledge can have. Have yourself a filter. What I mean by a filter is information is getting thrown at you. I'm sat here giving you information. It's going into your ears. But you must have a filter by which you sort that information out. If you hear something from me or from anybody else or you read something in a book which rings an alarm bell, that doesn't make sense. And I'm not sure about that. That goes against what the principle that I've already heard about Islam. Flag it, underline it, write it, and ask a question about it. You might be wrong, or I might be wrong. Both could be possible. But ultimately, that filter will serve you amazingly well. Because you will have in the future, for most people, you will have teachers who will not always be ideal in terms of maybe some issues of belief, some issues of practice and some other problems or teachers who are, don't know very much or teachers who maybe have, are not expert in the subject. So ultimately, you must be able to process the information. If you allow everything that reaches your ear to go to your heart, you will become sick very quickly. Not only sick but also ignorant very quickly. Do not allow everything that goes in your ear to reach your heart. Have yourself a filter where you say, yes, this is in accordance with the Quran and the Sunnah, what I know of it. I'm going to act upon that. I'm going to implement that. This one, nah, I don't know, you know, the Sheikh said, you know, for example, you're sitting in a lecture and the Sheikh says, musical instruments, many of the scholars said that they are halal. This should automatically hit your filter and go flag. What is, he, what is this? I, this goes, I don't know. What I know is music is haram. Let me put this in my filter. Of course, the sheikh could be right. But ultimately, you have to flag that up. You have to write it down and say, I don't understand this issue. Let me get clarity. You go back to one of the scholars. You might go to the same teacher. If you're not satisfied with the answer, you may go to another teacher until you have got enough of an answer that you are satisfied that you have genuinely uh, understood what the sheikh said in the right context. It might have been out of context. The sheikh might have said, that's not what I said. I didn't see many of the scholars. I said, there's one opinion. Or I said a minority and you heard the word majority. Or something like that. But you have to write down. Likewise, when you're studying a book or listening to a tape, you're reading a book, you come across a fatwa, it's halal to take riba in non-Muslim countries. That instantly should flag in your mind. Riba, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, Take a message of war from Allah and His Messenger. What do you mean riba is halal in non-Muslim countries? You may find this in some of the books of fiqh. I tell you, if you read the books of fiqh, you will find this in some of the books of fiqh. 
So ultimately, you have to flag those things. If you allow everything you read to go in your heart, Wallah, you'll be praying half the prayer of one group and half the prayer of another, and you'll be praying, you know, you'll be doing so confused and everything will become halal and you'll just end up lost. And you'll say, Talibul ilm has only made me more confused than I was in the beginning. And I saw people like this. You know, the brother says, I said, I used to see you come and pray in the jama'ah. I don't see you in the masjid. He says, no, I don't pray in the jama'ah anymore. Because the rajih, according to the qawl al-jumhur, is that praying in the jama'ah is not fard. Apart from the fact that this is not the rajih, this is not the correct opinion in the first place, even if it was the correct opinion, what does that do to you that everything you read in a book of fiqh, you put into your heart immediately, it leads you to stop coming to the masjid, you know, the guy comes with a shaven beard. You ask him, why do you shave your beard? He said, well, according to some of the scholars, growing the beard is not fard. Allah, but according to some of the scholars, yani you, there are lots of opinions according to the scholars which are shawad and ajaib and strange opinions. And they're not mainstream, but you can see an opinion for anything. Don't allow everything to go into your heart. Even in a good class with a good teacher, put yourself a filter and ask and question. It will save you from a lot of hardship. I think that is... Uh, sufficient insha'Allah ta'ala uh, the other chapters we have to deal with the students etiquettes with the shaykh the etiquette of companionship the student is academic life adorning yourself with actions and precautions and dangers all of these you can read insha'Allah ta'ala from the book etiquettes the etiquettes of seeking knowledge Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid it's available in English if any of you do speak Arabic I strongly strongly suggest that you do not read these books in English because you will get so much more benefit from reading them in Arabic. If you read them in Arabic, there is an explanation of Sheikh uh, Ibn Uthaymeen, Rahimahullah Ta'ala, Sharh Hili uh, Talib Al Ilm. Also, there is an explanation of Sheikh Sa'ad Al Shitri, also. And there are many, many other explanations of Hili Talib Al Ilm, but definitely Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen's explanation is amazing. So I highly recommend for you guys to. Uh, read at least and I'm going to give you some books now at least at least at a minimum the etiquette of seeking knowledge by Sheikh Bakr Abu Zaid anything you come across in the book that you don't understand highlight it bring it to class and we will inshallah ta'ala explain for those of you who speak Arabic there are some other books that I would recommend the guys who are leaving if I could just ask you to be as quiet as you can so that inshallah it doesn't disturb the other guys so I would recommend from the books that I would recommend that you read are Al-Faqih, these are in Arabic and I'll put some of the names down for you inshallah Al-Faqih Wal-Mutafaqih Al-Faqih Wal-Mutafaqih It's called Al-Khatib, it's called the scholar of fiqh and the one who is seeking knowledge you know the scholar and the one seeking knowledge also, Tadkirat al-Sami' wal-Mutakallim by Ibn Jama'ah. Jami' Bayan al-Ilm wa Fadrih. 